0: The first thing that I think you should do is to to say to yourself, if I could find one moment in my life, and maybe this is a failure moment, it could be a success moment. It doesn't really matter. But the way you look at it is say, what's the before and what's the after? And that thing will become sort of the, the North Star of your story.
1: Welcome to another episode of Success Through Failure. This is your host, Jim Harshaw Jr., and today I bring you Sean Coyne. You feel out of balance in your life, like your family and your work are your priorities, but you don't have enough time in the day, so you're shortchanging them both, not to mention wanting to work out more or or do more of the things that you love. Are you easily distracted and you want to be able to stay more focused so you can lock in on the most important things that you know you should be doing? You want to be more consistent so you can achieve those goals that always seem just out of reach. Or maybe you feel like you just lack the motivation that it takes to get there. Or maybe you're just not clear on what the right first step actually is. Like every time you're about to take action, you doubt whether or not it's the right action or the right goal. I know the feeling. I've got a wife and four kids. I have a job, a rental property, this podcast, not to mention the inevitable challenges that just come up with life, like you know, illness and struggling family members or car trouble. I've got a lot going on. But when I was a Division I All-American athlete, I was completely locked in. I was focused. I was balanced. And I knew exactly what I wanted and the steps that I had to take to get it. But when I got into the real world, things got a lot more complex. There's just a lot more time demands. Like everything seems to be a priority. How are you supposed to figure out what's the right next step for you? Well, I've developed a system that helps you do just that. Find the balance, the clarity, the focus that you're looking for so you can take your life to the next level. So you can start seeing the dreams that are in your mind as realistic goals and have a plan to achieve them. I've opened a few spots on my calendar for free 30-minute strategy calls so you can take that first step toward the life that you've always dreamed about. Just one simple step, one small commitment that will give you huge results, a simple phone call that will leave you with a plan. If you want this life, if you want to truly have a breakthrough, claim one of the few spots, open on my calendar, and I'll share with you the formula that has had people who I work with saying things like one of my recent coaching clients, Frank, who said, my only regret is that I didn't do this 20 years ago. Or like Isaac, who said, I love this version of myself the best, and I'll do anything to keep it going. I've got dozens more quotes like that. If you want to feel the same way, go to jimharshawjr.com. Slash apply. That's Jim Harshaw Jr. dot com slash apply. Sean is an editor, publisher, literary agent, and writer. He's the co founder of Black Irish Books along with Stephen Pressfield. And if you're wondering where you've heard that name before, Stephen Pressfield is the author of books like The Legend of Bagger Vance, Gates of Fire, Warrior Ethos, and my favorite, The War of Art. Anyway, Sean and Stephen Pressfield are the co-founders of Black Irish Books. But Sean is the author himself of multiple books, uh, one being the Story Grid, which is a blueprint for how to write a compelling story. Sean is also the co-author of the book Cognitive Dominance: A Neurosurgeon's Quest to Outthink Fear, which is uh, I interviewed Mark McLaughlin, who is the the main author of that book. Uh, in episode 223, uh, Mark is one of my clients. Uh, written an amazing book alongside Sean Coyne. So I had Sean on the podcast to really talk about telling a story. Why do we want to tell a story? Why do we need to tell a story? Sean really truly believes that everybody needs to tell their story, and everybody has a story to tell. And you're sitting there thinking, "Not me," you know. Maybe maybe other people do, but not little old me. But I want you to listen to this episode and really see yourself in a story. And Sean breaks down the hero's journey, which is something that that writers and movie filmmakers have to think about when they're creating a story. I want you to see yourself, especially when Sean gets to this point in the conversation in the episode you're about to listen to right now. See yourself in a movie. See yourself as the hero in this hero's journey and really Think about the challenges. Think about the failures. Think about the adversity that you've dealt with and you're dealing with right now, and you know, including all of the ups, all of the downs. See yourself in that story. It's really going to change your mindset about your journey and where you're at and what's possible in your life. And he talks about writing as a way to examine your life, just the value of writing your story in and of itself, about you know the, the value in terms of mindfulness and awareness, and if you're in, interested in, in maximizing your personal performance, we talk about that. As a matter of fact, I share, uh, I get a lump in my throat at one point in the in the conversation here as we talk about a, a powerful experience that I had in self examination about a year ago. But whether your audience is uh, your kids or your friends, or you want to tell a good story to your colleagues, sell yourself to your boss, whatever it is. You need to learn how to tell a good story. And one thing that I really wanted to get to in the episode, but we just go so deep into some of these things that we didn't get a chance to talk about it, is something called the Lunch Pail Manifesto. I'm going to have that, or I do have that waiting for you in the action plan. So make sure to go to jimharshajuniorcom slash action to check out the Lunch Pail Manifesto. And there are, there are 10 things in the Lunch Pail Manifesto. I'm just going to read you the first two just to whet your appetite a little bit. Number one, we must find the work that brings our lives meaning. Number two, we must strive to make our work purposeful, truthful, and authentic, a pure offering to our muse and fellow human beings. So I hope that whets your appetite for this episode and for getting the action plan again, jimharshaw slash action. If you want to explore any of this with me personally and you want to schedule a free Clarity Call, you can do that. I offer 30-minute segments on my calendar. They're limited. But if you go to jimharshawjr.com slash apply, you can find a time on my calendar for you and I to have a free individual coaching call. I look forward to talking to you there. Without further ado, here's my interview with Sean. Coin. Sean, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, Jim. Happy to be here.
1: So glad you could be here for us. Let's just start with this. Tell us about your background, where you grew up, and kind of give us the short version of how you got from from there to where you're at now.
0: Oh, okay. Well, uh, I grew up in a suburb of Pittsburgh. I think just like you did, and. So I have very, very deep blue-collar roots, and I know your family does too. Yeah. So yeah, it was kind of a really interesting time to grow up in Pittsburgh because we had the Pittsburgh Steelers, but we also had the closing down of basically the steel industry. And in fact, uh, years ago, I wrote a book with uh, ESPN writer Chad Millman on the thing called uh, The Ones Who Hit the Hardest. And anyway, so I grew up there, and then I left in around 1982, went to college. After graduating from college, I didn't know what to do. I was sort of at a crossroads about going to medical school, and I decided to hold off on that, and I'm still holding off on it.
1: <laughs> where, where did you go to college, by the way?
0: I went to Harvard College. Right. So, yeah. And um, Did you play football or did you play I did. I played yeah, okay. football in high school and a couple of years in college until I just my knee was just a mess at that point. So yeah. I got lucky and I got uh, I had to quit. So then after that, I came to New York City after college and after a few years of trying to figure out what to do, I ended up in book publishing, and I worked my way up in book publishing from probably 1991 through the year 2000. And then I left big book publishing and started my own publishing company in 2000 called Rugged Land Books. And a lot of the success that I had there had to do with working with the National Football League. And I worked with people like Brett Favre and uh, the widow of Walter Payton. And we did a series of books that were extraordinarily successful that included You know, color photography, biography, and uh, actually we put DVDs inside. And those did really, really well. And I, I published a bunch of other stuff. But eventually I realized that it wasn't really what I wanted to do. And I had to shut down the company. And it was a painful experience. But one that was a pivotal kind of turning point in my life. And then I worked for a talent agency for a while to make ends meet, called the Endeavor Agency, which is now William Morris Endeavor. Um, And then shortly after that, I started my own agency, and then began doing publishing with my client and good friend Stephen Pressfield. And you know, we—I originally published a book called *The War of Art* back in 2000 with Rugged Land. And when the paperback rights came up. Again, I still controlled those rights. And Steve and I decided to publish it ourselves instead of selling it back to the major publishers. And we started a a company called Black Irish Books back in 2011. So uh, it's almost 10 years now. And we've published about 20 books since then. And the latest book that we published was one I, I did with your friend, Mark McLaughlin. That's right called cognitive dominance. So, in the meantime, I also wrote a sort of a an academic examination of the art of storytelling, the structure and how to, you know, make a story that works and to edit it called The Story Grid. And I started a tangential business off of The Story Grid and now I teach seminars on writing and storytelling and I really Deeply dive into kind of the evolutionary theory and the science behind story, and it's been uh, remarkably uh, fulfilling and extraordinarily popular. And it's it's just been great to be able to to do something that's near and dear to my heart, and to be able to spread you know knowledge that I've I've gained over thirty years working in, in book publishing. So I think that's a pretty Good, quick overview.
1: Yeah, and so you have had some amazing experience in the editing world and publishing world. And in Stephen Pressfield, by the way, the the War of Art is just an incredible book. And for the listeners, we're going to have Stephen Pressfield on the podcast here uh, shortly as well. So probably just a few weeks after this episode, that one will get published. And uh, great books. We'll, we'll get into that with Stephen, but you you know, there a lot of the listeners are thinking I think I think a lot of people believe that yeah, it would be neat to, to write a book, right? And it would be it would be sort of a a lifetime lifetime work to do something like that. But a lot of people are thinking, yeah, I'm never gonna write a book and I don't have interest in doing it. But you said that everyone should tell their story. And I know that you're passionate about this and I know there's deep meaning to this for you. Why is that important? Why should everyone tell their story?
0: Well I actually believe that storytelling and the ability to to understand story and to be emotionally moved by story is, it's the psychotechnology that separates us from every other living species. And I'll go all the way back to 200,000 years ago. And, you know, when we see those cave drawings and we see that, that artwork that came uh, online, it actually occurred right after a big catastrophic event. It was a big sort of apocalyptic event that anthropologists talk about. It was this explosion of this massive volcano. And at the time, it widowed widowed down humanity to less than 10,000 people, they think. And shortly after this event is when this psychotechnology of storytelling came online. And so if you go back and you look at uh, the artifacts, uh, all of these stories were all about survival, right? So people were telling each other where the food was, where the water was, what the best hunting grounds were, how to build shelter, how to know the fertility rights of a specific time and place, all those sort of things that enable us to survive. And I think over the years, that sense of people capable of understanding a story and to think about their lives abstractly as you know things that have a beginning a middle and an end has been extraordinarily helpful in our ability to survive and thrive on the planet so if you sort of accept that that initial proposition that storytelling is this critical thing that in our minds enables us to survive and thrive better than other species, then, you know, you can kind of take the next step and say to yourself, well, what happens when I imagine a story? How, how is it, what happens to my brain? How do I, how do I move through the world in the way that I can when I, when I think of stories? And essentially what it does is it helps us examine the choices that we make and it makes us frame our life on a continuum, as opposed to, oh, geez, I got to get up and go, go to work today, or I have to do a Zoom call. If you can step back and think of your life as a story and say to yourself, well, why am I doing that? What's, what's, why did I choose this profession to begin with? What is it about you know, my obsession with a particular sport or in a particular skill or training? Why do I do that? Why is that important to me? So thinking about that and it's sort of like, yeah, nobody, everybody doesn't want to have to write a book about their life or their story, but just thinking, you know, walk into any bar and what do you hear? You hear, you know, guys like us telling stories about when we were playing football or we were running track or we were playing basketball or, you know, that big test we aced when we were in high school, those pivotal moments in our lives. That's what really connects us to one another. And everybody's got a story. Everybody likes to tell a joke. So I think that the more we think about our lives in terms of a beginning, middle, and end, what does my life mean? What What is this all about? I think the better attuned we can be to our environment, the better we can adapt to it, the better we can help each other get over things that seemingly seem like, Impossible. So the more people who self-examine and think of their lives through story, and actually even sit down and write them, or you know dictate them into a tape recorder, it doesn't mean that it's it has to be a commodity. In fact, it's probably better that you don't commodify it. What I mean by that is like don't think writing will have an end result that will make you uh, you know well raise your status. Because I got to tell you, and I, I know you're going to talk to Steve, but even the people with the most successful books, once that title is gone, once that story has been told, the creator of the story doesn't even feel like it's theirs anymore. And that's a really good hmm. thing, because you don't seem to attach to it like it's like you own it. And I think that's, there's something really telling about that. So. Even those people who create books and stories that, that we consume and they make their living doing it, once they've created it, they kind of let it go and it, it becomes its own thing. So if you're going to write your own story, it doesn't have to be a commodity. The process, the very process of thinking about, well, I wonder what should happen next in my story. That process actually enables us to open up our minds to possibilities. So the more we think of storytelling, the more we tell stories, the more open our cognitive framing becomes. So when I say I think everybody should tell their story, that's what I'm getting at. I think storytelling is the process by which we open up our minds to new possibilities and we don't start sort of automatically, habitually doing the things that we always do. If we ask ourselves, geez, I wonder why I'm doing that. I, I wonder why, you know, I, I can't kickstart my day until I have six cups of coffee. You know, that's a pretty interesting idea. Like, <laughs> well, maybe I'm not getting enough sleep. You know, maybe I need to to think about my my general, you know, physical being as opposed to all of these deadlines. Maybe there's a way for me to to reconsider the behaviors that i have and the way by which we can do that is by thinking over our lives in terms of an overall narrative arc you know what how i mean the the stoics and the mystics and the all of those people the big point is to think about yourself and how you would like to be remembered right like what meaning can i derive from the things that i've done in my life such that when i'm gone somebody might say yeah, and I'm not really sure I was a big fan of Sean Coyne, but he did write a pretty good book. You know, I'm okay with that because at least I've, I've, I've put something into the world that is going to stay here after I've gone. So if you write down your story, you tell your story at the bar. I mean, you're, you're a Pittsburgh guy. I'm sure you've been into a few Pittsburgh bars. What happens in a Pittsburgh bar?
1: Lots of stories.
0: Lots of stories. You walk in there and what do you see? You see old pictures of football players or yeah. wrestlers or or guys in track and you ask the bartender, Well, what's the story behind that guy over there? And he goes, Oh my gosh, you don't know him? He was at he went to North Catholic and he played for and then he went to
1: Yeah, Penn. and then the guy then the then the guy sitting next to you in the barstool next to you jumps in and yeah and his That's right Bobby, he did this and yeah.
0: And or they'll say yeah, and he worked at Jones and Lachlan down the way, and he right. put in twenty years. He was a, and you can just get these stories, and you think, yeah, this is this is my kind of place. This is where I belong. These are the kind of these are the kind of people that I modeled my life off of. These are the people who went into work every day, and came home at eight o'clock at night exhausted, but they brought back their lunch pail, and the next morning. You know, that lunch pail had been filled and they went out and they did it it again. And that work is the result of you and I even being able to have this conversation. So that meaningful story, it doesn't have to be, oh, and then I climbed Mount Everest. That meaningful story of people who committed to their community, busted their butts to raise families And to have children that were able to think and maybe do something a little bit different than what they did, that's the stuff of community and and caring that's important. So the more we tell these stories, the more people can feel a community of being and, and feel like there's a purpose here. There's some meaningful stuff. So that's why I'm so committed to storytelling. And I think it's really the more we think of our lives in terms of a beginning, middle, and end the better everybody's going to be.
1: So is there a value to learning how to tell a story? Well, Uh, certainly for the aspiring authors, the even the aspiring bloggers or the bloggers who might be listening, right. Or, or the folks who do some kind of writing, any kind of writing, is there a value to learning how to tell a story? Well, and, and, and I want to reflect for a moment, you know, kind of back on what you talked about earlier, like, you know thousands of years ago and you know there was communication through these paintings on a wall right and, and there are cultures still in society in in the world today who you know their their traditions are passed down through orally right through through story i mean is there is there a value for us in learning how to tell a story well
0: well i'm going to i'm going to drop a bomb on you and 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 let you know my grand theory about what the purpose of stories is all right so I think that stories are the technology that passes along wisdom. So with every story, there's a hidden controlling idea that actually is a means by which we can learn something new. So it's almost like a knowledge transmission device that is entertaining to
1: us, but it brings, as Aristotle called it, catharsis, right? This is if it's done well, I think, right? I mean, if it's done well. Right. Because we've all sat in a lecture, not all of it, I mean, Some people have sat in a lecture hall with a professor standing in front of the room, boring you to death, trying to transmit information, and it's not, it's not computing. But then you go into the next professor, and, and he's telling a story well, right. and you're learning, and you're engaged, and you're drawn in, and you're entertained, and, and you learn.
0: That's right. So the structure of storytelling is actually, in my estimation, it's a the means by which we actually react and think to unexpected events. So the structure of a well-told story mirrors and mimics our actual uh, insight moments in our lives. So what I mean by that, is, and Mark and I talk about this in the book, is that the way, what usually happens is, an unexpected thing drops into our life. So on my way to make a cup of coffee, I might not see the skateboard that my daughter left in the pathway. (laughs) Right? So I'm not expecting to see a skateboard as I'm going to make my coffee, but that's, that's an inciting incident. And if I step on that skateboard and I fall, that's a progressive complication that complicates My goal of being able to make a cup of coffee. Now, it could be an irreversible progressive complication that turns the value of that moment from unsatisfied to injured, (laughs) so injured that I might have to go to the hospital and I don't get any coffee. So the value in that moment, in that scene shifts from, it changes. There's a turning point. And the value shifts in that moment. And then a crisis arises. Should I scream out and ask for help or should I crawl to the phone, right? Which one of those should I do? Or should I just shake it off and go make my coffee? So that moment of decision of crisis is the climax of the scene. That decision, that motor action that I choose in that crisis moment is what moves the scene forward. And then it resolves. I either get the coffee or I go to the hospital. It's That's the simple structure of a well-told story, and you can really pull that out of a great advertisement, a great lecture in a, in a school, a great story at a bar. That simple five-stage structure is a really, it's the substance of storytelling, and it's also the means by which our brains actually engage us for motor action. It's it's remarkable.
1: And for the listener, this is relevant in, in a lot of ways, right? Whether you want to write your book or you wanna you know give a lecture to your kids' soccer team, or you're a teacher, or you have children of your own, or you want to tell a story to a group of friends or your boss or a job interview or whatever the case might be. Like this is relevant and it's important to be able to, to be able to tell that. So Every story has every good story, I think, has failure in it. Am I am I right, Sean? Absolutely. And failure plays a role in like the hero's journey. Is it useful to see our lives at times as part of a hero's journey? And, and, and I don't know if that's uh, that's a funny thing to think about, but whenever we you know whenever we fail, whenever we face obstacles and adversity. You know, the hero's journey, and maybe you can break that down a little bit for the listener what the hero's journey is, but but how that might be relevant for us to not only see our lives, but also whenever it comes time to tell a story to, you know, again, you know, in a classroom or to our kids or to our boss or a group of friends, et cetera. Tell us about the hero's journey and tell us about the role of failure in that journey.
0: Sure. The hero's journey comes from uh, Carl Jung and uh, Joseph Campbell made it. Uh, pretty famous. He wrote a book called "The Hero with a Thousand Faces," which you know really expounds upon and uh, you know proceduralizes a lot of Jungian ideas. And what Jung discovered is that he started to look at all of these these stories from multiple kinds of cultures, and then he sort of pulled together the patterns that he thought were repeated in all the stories, from Mesopotamia to Gilgamesh to you know the Greeks to Shakespeare. All of these stories at their heart have sort of this trajectory of the protagonist or the protagonists who have to face those things that I was talking about, unexpected events. So something unexpected happens to a protagonist. And what happens is that the protagonist has a particular worldview, right? So we all have our own worldview. Uh, it's kind of like that that phrase that people sort of use when you confront them with something that they might not want to deal with. They'll say, "Well, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it." So that is how I define a worldview, and the heroic journey is all about how we can expand that worldview, how we can open ourselves up and our mind and our cognitive framing in such a way that we're more in it in tune with what's really going on as opposed to what we hope is going to go on. So the simple structure of the hero's journey is that at the beginning something unexpected happens. And the hero it he doesn't or she doesn't even notice it. Until that unexpected event gets larger and it's like a like a radioactive force. And the more the protagonist doesn't deal with it the larger and larger it gets. It gets progressively larger and larger and larger until it reaches a moment when the protagonist has to come to a crisis decision. So that sort of moment there is the call to adventure. And in this moment, the character has to decide, well, should I leave this physical world that I'm at right now, and it can be a metaphysical world too. But can I leave my familiar surroundings and go on a mission so that I can help other people or myself? So that's the heroic journey. And usually what happens in these stories is that the protagonist really avoids having to do this mission until such time as their cowardice starts to affect other people. So a hero, at the first stages, is okay being kind of a wimp. And they're like, you know what, I'm a wimp, I like being a wimp, I like the way my worldview is, I'm not hurting anybody, it doesn't matter. I'm not gonna do anything. And then what happens is their inaction creates you know, agency deprivation for other people, meaning other people get hurt. So the hero at this point recognizes that their inaction is hurting other people. So it hits this moral, ethical wall. And the the hero has to say, oh, geez, I guess I'm going to have to do something about this or these other people are going to get hurt. So they go on the adventure. That's called the beginning hook of the heroic journey. Then they go into an extraordinary world, a place they've never been before. And they have to use all of their skills to be able to navigate this world, but they don't know kind of what's going on. It's sort of like when you're, you leave your hometown and you go, to, you go to college. So I'm sure that first day of college, everybody, who ever experienced it, was like, oh my gosh, I don't have any friends here. What am I going to do? Who am I going to eat? What, what, what am I going to do? But they know they have to keep pressing on. And so they have to adapt to this new environment. So the rest of the hero's journey is about that hero figuring out how to attain their specific goal. So for example, let's say I wanted to go to medical school when I went to Harvard. So I went there freshman year and you know what? I did okay. I didn't do great, but it was really difficult slog. And so I had to reach a point, and this is usually about the midpoint of a story, where I bombed. I didn't. It didn't work out for me. And this happened to me in organic chemistry. So I was sitting there. I got out
1: of, got out of biology major before orgo.
0: <laughs> so I had to take the orgo test, right? And I got like 10 out of 100. I got 10 points out of 100, which is like worse than the worst. And so I hit a moment of crisis. I, it's like all these things that I had been telling my story to myself my entire life was you're going to be a doctor and now you're failing. What's what's the deal? So it's at that moment, you kind of fall into this chaotic realm. And that chaos is necessary because it makes you really start to break your frame. It makes you think, well, maybe, maybe I don't want to be a doctor. Would I be an okay person if I weren't a doctor? Are there people I admire who aren't doctors and these answers and these, these answers to these questions actually start to break up the way I viewed the world. Now, I'm a stubborn person. So the whole Black Irish thing comes from me being stubborn. And so what happened to me in college is that I doubled down on my dream. I didn't want to break my frame. So what I did is I studied like a madman and I made it through my, my degree. But lo and behold, I couldn't run away from the fact that there was something not quite right about me becoming a doctor. And so when it came time for me to take the MCATs, I kept putting it off and I didn't do it and I didn't do it and I didn't do it until finally I had to finally open up my mind and say to myself, you know what? Maybe being a doctor isn't for you. Could, could you you know handle that as a person? if you're not a doctor. So at that moment, that's the critical moment when I had to break my frame and my my mind opened up and I said, okay, well, let's take doctor off the list and let's open up and look at the potential things that you could do. And it took me a while to find them, but that's a heroic choice. I'm not trying to say that I'm a superhero. I'm just trying to give you the framing of how the heroic journey works in everyday life. You don't have to be Superman making decisions that could cost you. And it was a costly decision, right? Like my mother and my father, they wanted me to be a doctor. My brother and my sisters did. So coming to that conclusion that, you know what, I'm just not going to be a doctor and other people are just going to have to deal with it. And they might be disappointed in me, but that's not who I am. That's a heroic choice. And so the way it resolves is that then the hero moves forward down the road with a new idea? Their cognitive framing has opened. So you can see how the heroic journey, we can sort of map it onto a lot of our personal experiences. And just like you do, Jim, pointing out moments of failure is a good thing. Because guess what happens? We all have a lot of moments of failure in our past, but here we are anyway, right? We got over those, we integrated to the new world in which we weren't particularly successful in one particular event. And it's not the end of the world. And the more you look at your failures and say, ah, geez, well, that that didn't work out. Anyway, let me see something new. The more you can, the stronger you get. It's like weightlifting. You know, the more stress, you stress adapt. And what is it? Stress, recover,
1: adapt, right? Right. And I think it's helpful for the listener to look at your life and think about your failures as this is part of your journey. This is part of your hero's journey, right? This is, you're going to have setbacks along the way. Every good story does just like your story, right? So understand that this is the part of every great story that we've watched or read or ever learned about. And it's the same for you. So, Think about your life and your failures uh, as part of that hero's journey. Now I want to go back, Sean, to something you talked about. this you know, writing this story, doing the writing of our own story helps us be aware, right? It helps us be mindful of the choices that we make and why we make these choices and you know, being attuned in, in self-examining our lives we can't understand where we're at in this journey, or even that we're on a journey unless we do the self-examination. And so is writing a tool for doing that, right? Whether we publish a book or not, what's the value of writing?
0: Well, yeah, I think it's the process by which we open up our minds. So being able to look at your life and your experiences when you're going through a traumatic experience, say, you know, you got laid off, instead of sort of micromanaging the layoff and saying, oh my gosh, what am I going to do until the end of the month? Yeah, you got to do that stuff. That's important. But what's more important in order to be able to make those decisions the best possible way is to step back from yourself for a while and say, well, let's, let me take a look at this bad thing that just sort of happened. I wasn't really that excited about going into work every day anyway. That's kind of true. And my boss isn't really the most supportive person in the world. That's kind of true too. And I am getting X number of dollars as a severance. That's not so bad. Now, what can I do? Let me look at the framing of my life and see if there's an intersection between something that's really concerning me with an avocation. And maybe I can micromanage and plan the best use of that severance package in order to explore a new arena, explore a new domain that has always been interesting to me. And guess what that does? That process by looking at ourselves from a macro point of view and saying, here I am on this journey and sort of like, you know, metaphorically you know, taking a, a balloon up into the sky and looking at you, yourself down on the ground and saying, I wonder what would be good for that person down on the ground. I wonder what they really like. And to stop looking at yourself so self-critically and to think about what is it that is really their primary concern? How can that person discover what they care about most? And that way we start to direct ourselves to those things that are going to give us our lives the most meaning. So, you know, before we got on the the podcast, we were chatting briefly about our shared experience, and we were talking about the way the families that we knew and grew up with in Pittsburgh, that a lot of the the dads would work blue-collar jobs. Right. And, you know, they'd come home at the end of the day, and then they'd start, like, you know, teaching us how to play baseball. You know? Right. And a lot of these guys, you know, we would look at and go, oh, well, they were just a tool of uh, capitalism. But that isn't the way they saw themselves. And that's not the way we as their sons and daughters saw them either. We saw them as heroes because their lives were so extraordinarily meaningful to us that we looked up to them. They believed in fair play. They didn't believe in being a hotshot. And the way that they taught us how to play games was the way they approached their lives. And there's not a day or an hour or a minute in my life where I don't think, I wouldn't help people in Pittsburgh would think of me if I did something like that. Right. Taking advantage of somebody else. You know what? I wouldn't be well thought of. They take my picture down in the bar. There we go. You know what? That guy isn't worth being on our wall. So those are really, really helpful ways that I know my story and I can always reflect back and say, how would those people that I grew up with, how would, what would they think about what I'm about to do? Would they admire my choice or not? And you know, that's, that informed my choice not to go to medical school because those guys would say, dude, what are you doing? You don't want to be a doctor. Go find what you want to do and go do that. Right. Why do you think we worked eighteen-hour sh- shifts at the mill, yeah, right? For you to do something that isn't going to bring you meaning. You know, we sacrificed. You know, the intellectual pursuits so that you would have the opportunity to have them. So do the thing that you are called to do, as opposed to what you think you should. And. You know, that's the truth. That's the core ethos of every small town and every big city in the United States. That's the thing that we need to return to when we hit these crossroads moments in our lives. How can I best serve those ethics and those morals that made me the person that I am? That's a way of looking at story and your life and framing it so that these choices that we have to make under duress aren't so difficult. You know, no, I'm not going to cheat on my taxes to get an extra bunch of dollars this year. I can actually, you know, help my neighbor and we can grow a garden and maybe we can make up the difference there. That's a great way of looking at choices that we make instead of like, oh, I was forced to do something terrible because of things that I couldn't control. Well, I think we can control a lot of them. And the way we can control our choices is by looking at our lives as an arc, as a story, as a meaningful story. And think about not only those people who sacrificed for us, but who we are working for. Think of our children. Do I want my kid to to cut corners Or do I want them to say, you know, there was a time when things were tough and my dad got a second job bagging groceries downtown. And I'm never going to forget that. When things get tough for me, I'm not going to be so prideful that I can't get a second job to help out my family. That kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I get a little bit of a lump in my throat, honestly, when you were talking there, Sean, because... Yeah. I think, I think about my dad, you know, in the 38 years that he put into the sheet metal workers union and, and your father working for the seal union in Pittsburgh and the tough work that they did, but they saw meaning in it. Right. And they, they didn't see themselves as just necessarily a cog. They were, they came home and they taught it. They, they played baseball with us in the yard and they, they, they came home and, and, uh, and they were fathers and I mean, what amazing role models that we had, um, and, you know, my history of my family is just, it's very blue collar. I mean, it's very blue collar. And I, I value tremendously any tool for self-examination and writing is one of those. Another one of those is I, I worked with a hypnotherapist for uh, several sessions last year. And my I've always just wanted to you know, I always want to kind of maximize my potential and, and kind of get inside of my own head and identify limiting beliefs. And, and on the third session, we identified one of these beliefs and in one of these stories that was inside of my own head and of, about success and actually making money, making real money. And, and, and no one in my family had ever done that, right? Historically. <laughs> and, you know, if you look at my father, and my father's father and, and on back, right. And, and not doing work with my hands, right? And, and I, there's a, there was, I, I've come to realize that there was, a, there was a little bit of a guilt with that. And working with this hypnotherapist, I went, we got to a place where I was in a room with my father and my grandfather and my great-grandfather and my great-great-grandfather. And all of them were telling me, like, Jim, go. It's okay. This is why we did it like is for you to go. Right? And, right. and I felt this, like I'm leaving my people. Right. And they were like, no, you're not leaving your people. Like this is, this is the whole purpose. This is why we worked our fingers to the bone. Like we're happy right. for you. Right. And it's even just talking about it right now. I get a little bit choked up, but this is like, this is the value of story. This is the value of self-examination. And this is, um, you know, and I was able to, you know, Unlock something within me that 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 was really helpful. So and I think writing writing does that that same thing
0: Yeah, there's a lot of malware And there are a lot of stories that we tell ourselves that are just not They're not true You know, they're not accurate. They're not attuned to reality and the problem that we have It's difficult to identify them You know unless you imagine And when you imagine, and when you did the hypnotherapist, basically that's a process by which you're opening up your cognitive framing and you're allowing your mind to actually create that space where you actually did get to talk to your father, your grandfather, your great grandfather, right? That's a story that you created in your mind during that experience. That's as, as valuable, if not the most valuable tool of storytelling. Now, you don't have to sit down and write a short story about someone like Jim who went to a hypnotherapist and had this experience because you already experienced it. Right. So stories, when we look at them as commodities or as a chore, like, oh, I got to write this thing because it's supposed to make me self-examine. No, that's not the point. The point is storytelling is just about opening up your mind and considering, I wonder what it would be like to be in a room with the spirits of my, my ancestors. I wonder what they would say. Right. And guess what happens? They actually talk to you. That's not BS. They, set, they, were, they came to you through some metaphysical space, and they said, "Jim, get off of it, man. What do you think we worked so hard for? Get over yourself. Do the, you know, do what you need, man. That's why we sacrificed. We're not yeah. ashamed of the hard work that we did. Don't be ashamed of the hard work you're doing. There's nothing wrong. Right. Go ahead, go to it. So that's that's what storytelling is. It's not. Oh my gosh, I got to get an agent. I got to get a publisher. I've got to." Prove to people that I've written a book. That's not the point. What we say at StoryGrid, it's the process. It's always the process and not the results.
1: In the and pro- you've talked about the process being what makes you become a yes. quote-unquote professional,
0: right? That's right. That's right. And Steve, I, Steve's going to tell you the same thing. The hard part about writing is getting your ass in the chair. So the process actually going through the the stages necessary to concentrate, write some things down, or even to speak them into a dictaphone or whatever it is, that is the really valuable part. Now, there are plenty of things that I've written that nobody found valuable at all. And I didn't make any quote unquote money off of it. But all of those things contributed to my being able to tell better and better stories. So if I hadn't gone through that process, I wouldn't be able to help people tell their own stories. So whether or not there's a super you know, best-selling book about blah, blah, blah is not the point. It's the effort necessary. It's the blue-collar effort of showing up every day, doing your work, not complaining, feeding yourself when you get hungry, drinking the water so that you don't get dehydrated, getting in your car and stopping at the sporting goods store to get a couple of baseballs so that when you get home, you can teach your daughter and your son how to throw and play catch. That's meaning. It's not about, oh, well, my dad was just a blue collar worker and he never went to college. Yeah. I had a hardworking dad or mom. You nailed it. They never say, oh, well, my mom never went to college. No, my mom had food on the table every day. She worked a job as a nurse at nighttime, you know, and on and on and on. We don't talk about that. It doesn't matter whether they went to college or not. Their lives were. Because with our big fancy degrees and our big blah, 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 you know, deep down, we know, you know, eh, I don't know if, I really live up to that standard. But shoot for that standard because it's a damn good one.
1: Sean, you talked about you've written books that didn't go on to do maybe as you'd hoped, right? Those were, I don't know if you see those as failures. or not certainly, as you just said, those were, uh, those were the reason why you've been able to, to be successful. Can you tell us about a time when you failed? A time when you failed and felt that hopelessness and that self-doubt that comes from failure and how you worked through that and the value of it?
0: Well, sure. I mean, uh, when I was an ambitious guy like everybody else, and when I got into uh, major book publishing, I, I worked my tail to the bone. I came in on weekends, and my goal was to become sort of a major publisher of one of the big publishing houses like Doubleday or Random House or Little Brown or any one of those, Dell. And so when I got into the business, that was my goal. It was everything that I was working for. And there are stages that you have to go through before you can reach that level of accomplishment. And so I set myself my sights on, you know, becoming editor-in-chief first. And so I was working very hard and I thought I was going to be recognized. And then all of a sudden I showed up in a meeting one day and they announced the new editor-in-chief was a friend of mine and younger than I was. And so it was this. It was like I almost threw up sitting in the meeting because the way I took that was you didn't make it. You didn't make the grade. This other person's better than you are, and you're a loser. You know, what a joke you are. And so that, that quote-unquote failure stuck with me for a long time. It stuck with me so long that I, I made a pact with myself. And I said, I'll show them. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to leave this entire institution. And I'm going to start my own thing. And then I'm going to show them how great I am. And then they'll know that they made a big mistake. So I started my first publishing company. And I, I worked even harder. And I did amazing things. And we got seven New York Times bestsellers. From an independent publishing company, I got distribution by the major random house. And guess what happened? I felt terrible. Hmm. It was meaningless because I was being driven by negative, I'll show them. Right. And that's why it fell apart. That's why I was working so hard, I finally hit a wall and I realized through the help of a lot of people who weren't as devoted to my company as I was i realized this is not working this is not good for me and if i continue on this path i'm never going to feel happy i'm just going to be begging the next national football league star to do a book with me and that really isn't very meaningful and so at that moment was a you know it was that crisis moment in the heroic journey and i had to say to myself you know what, you got to get away from this. You have to try something else. And I left. And then I, you know, I went in a tangential road and I reconfigured, I reopened up my mind and I said, you know what, I still love books. I still love, what's the thing about books that I love? The story. Well, oh my gosh, I know so much about story. Why don't I tell people what I know about story and share it? And that's what moved me forward. My primary concern became sharing my passion and love for storytelling, as opposed to showing those people they made a mistake because they didn't give me the job that I really wanted in the status that I thought I deserved. And from that point forward, whenever I get stuck, I say to myself, is this about showing other people how great you are? Or is this really about the story?" And so having that prism and that lens to view the things in my life through that story lens has been extraordinarily helpful to me. And not you know I don't think it's a coincidence that once I made that shift those the financial stuff started to kind of work itself out. I mean things sort of clicked in ways that people w- were attracted They were attracted to storytelling. They weren't attracted to some guy showing an industry how wrong they were. Right. It's kind of like a repulsive force (laughs) as opposed to, Hey, I know some stuff about storytelling. I've worked on it for 30 years. If you're struggling and you need some help, Hey, stop on by. There's a lot of free stuff. You don't have to pay me anything. I share a lot of it for free. If you want more attention, then I'm I'm open for hire, right? And guess what? That works. Now it doesn't make me a big cheese in New York. No, I had to give up that dream because that's that's a nightmare more than it is a dream. Because when you're the big cheese, you know people. A lot of people want to topple you, and you're fighting for your life when you should be worrying about storytelling.
1: And for the listener, this is we've talked about focus on the process, not the outcome, right? This is exactly what Sean's talking about. Focus on the process, not the outcome, right? The outcome takes care of itself. And and the process should be based upon what you value, right? Yes. Not not becoming editor-in-chief, but but helping people put good work out into the, the best, their best work out into the world. And and once you once, you know, it sounds like once you did that, you know, that's when you really found meaning in your work, and, and you were happier and more successful financially and otherwise. Exactly, Sean. For the listener who's saying, "I'm in," I get it. I want to start writing. I want to. I want to write my book. This is uh, asking for a friend because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have that book in me. And 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 so, what can what action item can the listener take? Let's say in the next twenty four to forty eight hours to start moving towards writing that book telling that story. What what can they do? What can they start? What can they do in the next 24 48 hours?
0: Well, I'm going to give a very specific example and I'm going to use our our mutual friend Mark McLaughlin. Now, Mark is a, a really really high-end super duper neurosurgeon. He's a brain surgeon. So, when we started to work together, uh, we were working on this book and I I never felt like we were nailing it. I never felt like there was soul and all that stuff that we won in a great story. And it dawned on me that I didn't have, Mark never told me the thing that haunts him. He never told me the thing that he just carries around with him in his mind that really sort of torments him. And it's the thing that you talk about, like that failure moment, right? Right. So, so eventually I said to Mark, you know, we got to bring this story. You need to tell me a story that you don't tell everybody. Something that kind of, you look at it as before the experience and after the experience. So there's a before and after quality to it. And I need to know what that is, or we're not going to find the thread to, create the change necessary in your book. We need you to start at one side and end up at a completely different one at the end. So I need a central story. So it took Mark a while, but he finally said to me, well, I'm hesitant to tell you about this because it's really, it's really painful. And he told me the story of this young boy that he operated on when he was a very young brain surgeon. And it didn't turn out the way he wanted it. And he always blamed himself for it. And he always felt that he failed this person. And so I said, you know what, Mark, that's got to be in the book. And he said, yeah, I understand. I understand it has to be in the book. I'm willing to open up my psychic pain and put it forward. Now, here's, here's the really good story. Now, Mark had been framing that story in his mind as a, as a deep failure. And it it really did upend him and his personal life for quite some time. So much so that he stopped doing pediatric neurosurgery because he just couldn't stand. He couldn't take it. He couldn't see another child in the operating room. So he wisely, wisely, he said, you know what? I'm going to step away from that. That's not going to be good for me. So anyway, we talked about it. He told me the story and I said, Mark, I don't mean to be offensive to you and I don't want you to get the wrong idea but I think anyone you tell that story would say to you that you didn't do anything wrong. And he's like, yeah, 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 that's not true. So in the process of working through the book, he finally began to see that he had been lying to himself. That he'd been operating under malware and The process of writing the story he was able to resolve that that very deep painful thing within him through the process so like when we did finally publish cognitive dominance he and i are already so happy with it that the commercial success of the book isn't really that important to us now of course we want everyone to buy it and blah 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 but what it, what it was really exciting for me was to be able to be with Mark and see how his world changed and the way he saw himself change. So let's get back to this piece of advice that you asked me to give the listener. The first thing that I think you should do is to, is to say to yourself, if I could find one moment in my life, and maybe this is a failure moment, it could be a success moment. It doesn't really matter. But the way you look at it is say, what's the before and what's the after? And that thing will become sort of the the north star of your story. Because what you're going to want to do is say, okay, I've got this thing where I have before and then and after. So let me build, let me tell what happened to get me to the moment when it changed. And then let me tell the fallout of what happened after it changed. And that simple idea will start sort of percolating ideas and notions to you that will give you an arcing narrative that will help you frame and understand your own story. And what's going to be remarkable if, if you take up the advice is that the more times and the more you work on it, the processes by which you think about that will start to open up your ability to see it in a new light. So that great failure, like my failed publishing house, I now see it as this golden light. That was the moment where I changed my life. This thing put me into what I thought would be terrible, actually transformed it into something wonderful or something that you think you're going to get. Like I suspect that person who got that job that I didn't have That person is now one of the top editors in the entire business. And I think the stresses on her are really, really substantial. And I wouldn't trade places with her for a million dollars. So she got what she was shooting for. And it might have proven to be kind of catastrophic because she's probably not playing baseball or lacrosse with their kids in the yard like I do. I get to do that every day at three o'clock. Yeah. You know? So if you're looking at your story and you want to write a story or you're thinking about it, think about what what the Greeks call that moment of Kairos. The moment of Kairos is the turning point, uh, an event. And you might think like, oh, I don't want to go there because it makes me feel bad. That's a really big bell that says, yeah, you should go there. Or yeah, that's when everything changed for the better. Maybe not so. So you can see what I mean. Like that's the place where books are made and stories are told is these moments that change us and open up our cognitive framing or narrow it. You know, like the woman who did get the job, her framing is a little bit more narrow now than mine because I've had to open up myself to possibilities that she's never really had to. She's always been an insider in a very, you know, a lot of people love that institution. So anyway, that's my advice.
1: Sean, I think you've opened up all of our minds in new and unique ways that haven't been done before on this podcast. So thank you. Oh, my pleasure, Jim. Where can the listener find you? Follow you? by the book Story Grid. By the way, for the listener, I will say that uh, Sean has a five-video series on YouTube about Story Grid, about how to write your story, and it's just fantastic. And it breaks everything down. So I will link to that in the action plan. In addition to everything that Sean's about to tell us now, in terms of where to where to find him, follow him, etc. So go ahead, Sean.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's pretty simple. It's www.storygrid.com. And, you know, we've got, it's not just me. It's, we've got a community of about, about a hundred certified StoryGrid editors who contribute incredible content every week for free. There's no big commitment. You can literally, there's over millions of words that uh, we share for free about our passion of storytelling. So yeah, I would just go there, check it out, you know, read around, sample, and then the video series is great. And then I also, the book, The Story Grid is available at all those places that you would think, Amazon, et cetera. Also, blackirishbooks.com, that's the publishing company that I worked with, that I put together with Stephen Pressfield. And that's where you can find Cognitive Dominance. You can also find Cognitive Dominance on Amazon. But those two sites, blackirishbooks.com and storygrid.com, you'll learn more about me than you care to, I think.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Sean, fantastic conversation. Thanks for making time to come on the show. Oh, my pleasure, Jim. And go Steelers. That's right. (laughs) And for the listeners, until next time, take the time to get clear on your goals and embrace failure as a stepping stone on your path to success.